When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Angie O'Malley stood on her porch with her daughter and watched as Wiley drove up. This was in the desert, a thorny landscape of hallucinatory heat where the prickly pear drilled their spines into the caliche and hoped for rain, where immigrants from regions south seek refuge in snowbird sunshine, where bureaucrats ban books and brown skin and birth control, where companies designed sleek missiles and poured solvents into the soil, where in streets lined with small stucco houses, cowboys shoot their guns in noisy celebration on the 4th of July, and where the bodies of dead girls are sometimes abandoned in alleys. Once, only the arms were found. Once, a seven-year-old was knocked off her bicycle and abducted. Once, a two-year-old was stolen through the window of her bedroom. Such was the climate and the atmosphere. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Beth Alvarado, author of Jillian in the Borderlands. In this collection of dark tales infused with magical realism and ghosts, a girl who can't speak is gifted before birth with an understanding of several languages, an understanding of history and the world, and the ability to see those who have died. Jillian takes up everything and uses a pad of paper and pens to draw pictures that express what she's thinking. As she grows, Jillian understands that aching hardship of life for many, especially those who are immigrants, and is sickened by man's inhumanity to man. Starting with the notebook she uses to express herself, Jillian tells stories of her aunt's devastating fall from a motorcycle, her father's cancer caused by the contaminated water in his childhood hometown, and her grandmother's maid's attempt to stay in the U.S. to raise her granddaughter. Jillian ultimately gives birth to twin boys and creates stunning murals on the walls of a refuge for broken and elderly residents on the Mexican side of the border. Hi, Beth. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Gilly. Thank you for having me. So in the table of contents, you refer to the book as a cycle of rather dark tales. How did you come to write Jillian in the Borderlands? Well, um... I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of a funny story. I mean, I was teaching um, fiction writing and I was having my students imitate four different writers. And I wondered if I could imitate four people in one story. And so the first story, The Dead Child Bride, was really just an experiment to see if I could have four different voices or four different styles in one story. And um, I liked, I mean, I liked how it came out. So about a year later, I wrote another story. I wrote about one story a year for a while and then um, decided maybe I had a book. So I knew it was never going to be a novel because 
you know, I would just write a story at a time. And I also knew they were um, rather dark. <laughs> so I, I wanted to set up that idea in the table of contents that this is not going to be a novel and it's not going to be realistic and it's going to be a kind of dark humor. So um, that was why I did the table of contents the way I did. It took me a long time to figure that out. Mm. It's just a perfect title. Can you talk about the different borderlands portrayed in this collection of intertwined stories? Well, there's, of course, the literal borderlands, um, the Sonoran borderlands. But to my mind, you know, my husband was Mexican-American and um, he always talked, you know, said things like the border crossed us. We didn't cross the border. So and I always thought of, you know, all the different Spanish names going all the way up to Oregon. So um, I just expanded the borderlands to include a large part of the United States and then down into Mexico, too, for the, you know, for the literal physical borderlands of this story. So um, Colorado is part of the borderlands. And then there's the, um, the cultures that mingle the um, the borderlands between the real and the spiritual, um, the borderlands of languages. I wanted all of that to be kind of included in the idea of borderlands. Mm-hmm. We realized quickly that Angie, Jillian's mother, is raising her on her own in a series of unsafe neighborhoods ever since Jillian's father left. Can you say more about the relationship between Jillian and her mother? Oh, it's so funny that, um, I, you know, I hadn't given a lot of thought to that. I mean, partly because, um, partly because, you know, mothers and daughters are supposed to argue a lot, but Jillian is mute. <laughs> and so she could, you know, it was like, I didn't have that back and forth. And that's kind of how you, um, you know, create characters is by conflict between them. But because Jillian couldn't speak, um, she and her mother kind of exist almost like side by side in the world. And um, Jillian's mother, so Jillian can draw, she can't speak, but she draws. And so Jillian's mother is left to interpret the drawings, but you never know if she gets it right or not. Um, so I guess, you know, again, it was a function of the way that I did that first story, which was to have these different voices. So it's almost like, Jillian's mother tells her part of the story and then Jillian tells her part and then another character tells her part and the reader is left to kind of put it all together. Yeah. Angie's mother is Lois, Jillian's grandmother. Mm-hmm. She has a swanky apartment in San Francisco and a maid whose name she refuses to get right. Was that a fun dig at all the American householders who refused to pronounce the correct names of their staff members? <laughs> I think it was actually a dig at my mother who was just Lois is based on my mother and, and and the worst parts of my mother because in many ways my mother was a lovely person but um she would you know she would say uh prejudiced thing I mean it's kind of horrifying things and um so I just had it and I mean that's part of the borderlands too right or the the con- not only the way that cultures come together but the way that some they rub up against each other in conflict and you have you know asymmetrical power relationships so lois's mother is kind of a she is a dig at at that <laughs> you know people who hold themselves apart and above other people even though that often comes out of insecurity 
Mm-hmm. Why, does Lo- why does Lois spend so much time and energy so much more concerned about the welfare of Angie's sister? Oh, so I little just, about Angie. I don't, well, I, I think because Glenda is in this bad relationship. You know, there's this saying that you're only as happy as your most miserable child. And so mm-hmm. Lois is obsessed with Glenda because Glenda is unhappy. But Angie, you know, I mean, Angie can take care of herself and she's demonstrated that to Lois. So, and actually she ends up taking care of Lois and Glenda. So um, I think it's, I, I think it's, again, just kind of thinking about family dynamics and who each person is, you know, who are the caretakers and who need to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Strong women, not a lot of strong men. No, there aren't very many men in this book at all. In fact, um, you know, like when I got to the sixth story, Jillian Speaks, I wrote that story right after my own husband died. And so, um, you know, your own, my own life, you know, constantly leaks into my work. And so I was, you know, thinking a lot about him. I mean, before, I thought about him before he died. But, you know, when that happened, um, I became kind of obsessed. And so that was the first story I wrote after he died. And then I thought, oh, I have to, I have to include him earlier in the book, you know, so I had to then make up a character that was based, you know, Bobby, that was loosely based on my husband because my husband, you know, we, we were married the whole time. So um, anyway, so then I had to go back through and weave Bobby into the book. So that was one of the major revisions that I did. Usually I would just write a tale and then not write another one for a year and just hope they work together. But once Bobby came into it, I realized I had to do a little more um, weaving of the characters through all the stories. I am so sorry for your loss. And I, I hope that was helpful for you. To write, to write. Well, yeah. I've written a lot about him. I mean, this was, you know, he died in um, 2013. So this is quite a while ago. But um, yeah, I've written a lot about that grief. And actually, the first time I wrote about him was in this story. It was much easier to write a fiction that was um, very loosely based on the reality of our relationship. But, you know, that gave me some kind of permission that trying to write about it in nonfiction did not give me. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say more about Jillian's gift of seeing historical characters portrayed in black and white while she and her mother and grandmother are the only ones who are still in color? That was fascinating. I don't, okay. So I'm not really sure how that happened, why she could, well, it just seemed to me that that was one way to distinguish between the realities. I mean, just kind of literally in writing the scene, I had to have a way of distinguishing between what Jillian could see historically and what was really happening, because those both those things are happening in the same paragraph, the collision of those two realities. So that's why I think I made the past in black and white, like a photograph, so that the color would say, okay, this is, this is the... Um, the reality, right? And the black and white is the vision. So that was just kind of a logistical thing. I think the reason that um, I give Jillian so many kind of mystical 
powers or, you know, that's where the magical realism comes from is in the, in the kind of powers that the characters have. All the magical realism arises from the characters. So here I had written this, um, my, one of my main characters is female and she's mute. And um, so I've silenced my main character. So I just decided, well, what, what can I, you know, how is the universe going to make this up to her? How is she going to be compensated? So um, I just gave her a lot of different gifts, but they're usually, you know, so drawing is one of them. The other one is seeing um, ghosts or hearing what other people are thinking. So I just, um, and I would just give when I needed to, for her to have a gift, I would just give it to her, you know, like, like when the fiction needed for her to be able to do something, I would just give it to her because I was compensating for her inability to speak. So mm. it was, um, it made the book a lot of fun to write because I, you know, I kept thinking, well, you know, I was writing a lot of nonfiction at the time and I kept thinking, well, you know, what can you do in fiction that you can't do in nonfiction and make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> you could just give your character these gifts that she needs to have in the moment that she needs to have them. Yeah, I like it. Julian's teacher complains when she's a child about the violence in her drawings. But then we read a story about Julian watching a school shooter while she's on the monkey bars. Can you say more about her responses to what she's seeing, especially the street justice that she witnesses? Oh. You know, I that again came from an exercise I'd given my students. I found this thing on the internet about a, a botched school shooting in San Diego. And so I asked them to write about, you know, to pick a character in, in this story and to write from that character's point of view. So along with them, I wrote, um, I wrote what Jillian was seeing. And I mean, in some, some, there are some, in some ways, I think of these stories as being like fictional essays where I'm allowed to say what I'm really thinking and just riff on um, things like cruelty or, um, you know, in this case, the shooter gets tackled by these construction workers, but then they're unnecessarily rough with him probably. And so that idea that causing pain is a kind of justice, um, I don't know where that, I don't know why Julian thought of that, but, you know, it's because that seems true to me. But I realized it in the moment of writing it. So there's a, a lot of what happens in this book is um, I really did feel like I just was inhabited by these voices, you know, like I could just tap into them and allow them to spin out in whatever way they wanted. Whereas, you know, in nonfiction, I might have tried to control that more. Mm -hmm. So now Julian is a few years older. She's still a preteen, though, and... Her mother drives her across the Indian reservation in Northern Arizona to get mm -hmm. to the hospital where Glenda's recuperating mm -hmm. from an accident. Why does Angie, the mother, continue to put Jillian in danger again and again? Oh, I don't, well, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, her, you know, I mean, that again is based on something in my life. I was, um, I had to drive across that Indian reservation at night with my daughter because my mother was 
in the hospital and going to have quadruple bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I mean, it, I guess I realized that I was putting us in danger, but in a way it seemed like something that I had to do. And I took my daughter along with me. <laughs> so, oh. you know. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and if it, if real life was magical realism, you could have had like all kinds of protection. <laughs> That's so true. Well, you know, this book is a lot about anxiety and, and, and those are the things, you know, that especially when my children were young, that I would just make up this stuff in my head that was like, well, you know, maybe a ghost will come or maybe we'll be surrounded by light, you know, like all this mm-hmm. magical thinking about things that I couldn't control. You know, I guess I realized I, there was no way I could really keep my children safe other than to teach them to keep themselves safe. But, you know, the world is very unpredictable. And, um, I, you know, I think a lot of us practice magical thinking. All the time. How do do we survive without it? Um, So Marisol takes her granddaughter and along with Jillian and Jillian's cousin into the city of San Francisco. And and there's a, a, a huge amount of worry that she's going to be swept up in a an immigration rate. Can you say something about how, how that could happen in the middle of a city that, that suddenly ICE is panning out and grabbing people off the street? Could you talk about that some more? Well, that might be an anxiety thing again. I think, so when I started this book, um, Arizona had just instituted SB 1070, which is known as the, um, you know, show your papers law, where they could just pull over anyone that they thought didn't look like a citizen and ask for their papers. And so then as the book progresses, this anti-immigration sentiment and actions on the part of law enforcement just keep getting more and more severe until by the end of the book, you know, they're putting children in cages at the border. And so this, that particular story was probably 2010. And I think there had been raids on meatpacking plants in um, Denver. I mean, they would just go in and just sweep up all these people deport them. They deport them to parts of Mexico where they, they're not from, so they don't know anyone. They just get plunked in the middle of, you know, a hot desert with no money. And um, so I was, I was angry about that. And also, you know, in the fiction, um, maybe exaggerating a little bit to make a point about it, how um, unreal that is that we treat people that way. Mm-hmm. People like Mary Soul, you know, I mean, who's lived most of her life in this country. Her son is a citizen. Her granddaughter is a citizen. And, you know. and yet. Yeah. And it isn't a problem we've solved yet. No. So, um, so wow. I want to ask you about Jillian's birth father, Bobby, and meeting him. And now that you've tied that into your own life, um, I'm even more fascinated to know if you could say more about what happened to him, the, to the Bobby? Bobby, the fictional Bobby, <laughs> if you want. Well, it, uh, the, well, the same thing. He got um, liver cancer. And, so, and you know, your liver is as bumpy as a toad is actually what a surgeon said to my husband. And so he, um, they're one of the biggest Superfund sites 
in the United States is in Tucson, Arizona, and it's on the Mexico on the part of town where many Mexicans and Indians live. It's you know as you know it's an instance of environmental racism. Although the the dumping of the water was not intentional, the reaction to once they found it um, was racist, and a lot of people died. I think something you know I did a I wrote an essay about it, and I forget the numbers now, but. Um, so again, you know, that story was in reaction to something that had happened in my, in my life, but also something that I wanted to use fiction to draw people's attention to, you know, this. Mm. It was heartbreaking. Toxic waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, we're talking this country, right? Yeah. So yes. That was... Because there was some question, like, was this in Mexico? Where would they do this sort of thing? And, and it becomes clear. No, <laughs> okay, so now we meet Juana of God, and she's mm-hmm. a spiritual healer, but she has a bad heart. And it becomes clear that her power actually comes from elsewhere. Could you say more? Okay. So this was... Um... So my niece, whose mother had also died as a result of this um, contaminated water, was living with me. And she and I thought I had finished the last story. And she was watching Oprah. And there was this healer from um, Brazil named Juan of God. And Alicia called me into the room and said, here's your next Jillian story. Here's the next Jillian story. So I invented um, Juana of God, and my niece, Alicia, had a little um, chihuahua who hated me, was always biting me. So I decided that I would give Juana, um, Alicia's dog, Junie, and um, have the, you know, like have this the dog channel the spirit. So the thing that was, I mean, so in some ways I invented Juana of God because, you know, both Alicia's mother and Fernando had had... Um, cancer and and you know this whole you know the whole new age thing about you just have to have a positive attitude i was you know pissed off i was angry about that so i created one of god in a way to critique that but what happened was as a character she just kind of took over and she became one of my wisest characters and um she um, and and she just kept coming back i mean the book changed after i invented one of god changed in a lot of ways i think mm. well i loved Juana of god one big question <laughs> i got a big question okay. we come upon the story of jillian being very pregnant with her twins but we never get a hint about it and so i'm asking you just between you and me i won't tell anyone <laughs> well, how that happened how that happened well again my daughter actually my daughter's actually married but she got pregnant with twins and that became a big part of my life and um so i just decided that jillian would be pregnant but no one would talk about who the father was i mean there are a lot of again there are a lot of instances where um you know men don't take care of their children maybe that's because the women you know, don't want them to or whatever. But I just thought that what was most important in this book, especially was the mother and child relationship. And so I decided not to um, even think, I didn't even bother to think about who the father was. And I didn't want to base the story closely on my daughter's life because she has already objected to my writing Mm -hmm. about her, you know, 
So in my nonfiction, I'm not allowed to write about her in my nonfiction anymore. Of course. (laughs) I get that. What do you want the reader to remember about Jillian in the Borderlands? Oh, I I really um, hadn't thought about that, what I wanted people to take away from it. But I think it is, you know, just the... um, treating one another with kindness and humanity and, um, you know, maybe seeing what's beneath the, the reality. The reality can be very dark, but um, if we can help one another through it, then that makes a difference. I mean, that's pretty simple, I think. I don't think it's anything too profound. No, but I like it. That's start a movement. I like it. So, Beth, what are you working on now? I am working on a series of linked stories called Unreachable Cities. And I started it during the pandemic when I couldn't travel. So each essay is about a city and it's that I've been to. So there is, you know, some travel memoir. But then I also just started doing research into the history and art of that city, too. Things that I wanted to know about. And so that's what I'm working on. Well, I'm in Chicago if you want to come here for uh, <laughs> research. Oh, I would love to. I think okay. I finished the book, though. I finished it in Athens. <laughs> oh. So oh. I am. Um, so you're missing some of America's great cities in favor of. It's actually cities. mostly European cities. Ah, okay. Ooh, interesting. It was an escape, you know, it was in, because I got to watch travel TV and look at art, you know, all in my little 600 foot apartment. <laughs> Oh, it was so, it was a wonderful book. It was so lovely talking to you. Thank you for joining me today, Beth. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Beth Alvarado about her book of interconnected tales, Jillian in the Borderlands. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.